Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every Monday, to get your week started off right, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. In the past, I've talked to quite a few orchardists and agroforestry practitioners, especially in the series on reforestation and agroforestry at the end of last season. But I was really glad to be introduced to Michael Phillips' work by a great friend of the show, Nick from Minnesota. After speaking late last year with Stefan Subkowiak, Nick recommended that I look into Michael's incredible books for an even deeper dive into the soil health and biological spraying mixes that Michael has developed to promote holistic health as he pioneers the revival of the community orchard. Now, Michael Phillips is a farmer, writer, carpenter, orchard consultant, and speaker who lives on Hartsong Farm in northern New Hampshire, where he and his family grow apples and a variety of medicinal herbs. He is also the author of The Apple Grower and The Holistic Orchard. His Lost Nation Orchard is part of the Holistic Orchard Network, and Michael also leads the community orchard movement at GrowOrganicApples.com. He was also honored by Slow Food USA to receive the very first Betsy Linden ARC Award in 2005 for his work promoting healthy ways to grow fruit. In this interview, we take a deep look at what goes into growing healthy and delicious apples beyond what most people know about. Michael talks about the essential importance of diversity in a resilient orchard ecosystem and how it has to be balanced by what you need to make a profit at market. We also cover a wide range of practical advice from pollinator and pest management, biological mowing, as well as foliar sprays, shifting climate zones, and much more. I get a real thrill from talking to people with such an obvious passion and love for what they do, and in Michael's case, that passion is coupled with a deep understanding and knowledge of the science behind the health of his plants and soil. I highly recommend this one to anyone looking to grow fruit trees, even if you're not looking to take it all the way to a production scale. So now I'll hand things over to Michael Phillips. Hey, Michael, thank you so much for being with me today. How are you doing at this gorgeous time of the year? Oh, we're good here. <clears throat> Northern New Hampshire, this is spring and the biting bugs aren't out yet and it's just glorious to work outside. Um, oh, perfect. And the orchard is coming into its own. It's, it's, it's very happy. 
Yeah, now your project has been developing for quite some time. As I've read through your work in the past, your production has increased as new plantings have matured and your trees have gone online. But before we get into all of your orchard practices and the content of your book, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your personal background and how you began to develop a new path of holistic orchard management at Lost Nation Orchard? So somehow I discovered this passion for trees um, in, in the path of my youth. And when Nancy, my wife, and I purchased our farm here, um, it was basically an overgrown, rundown mountain farm that had been let go. Uh, and there were wild apple trees. And I knew I wanted to get into orcharding. And my conception of things were that I would want to do it organically. I wouldn't want to use chemicals. But of course, I didn't know a whole lot back then in the uh, mid-late 80s. And so it was just learning, reading, talking to other growers. And, you know, the consensus was that to, to grow fruit organically is basically impossible. It it's just can't be done. And I thought, well, that, that doesn't make sense if we go back to our great-grandparents' time. They were doing it. Um, and so as I explored organic farming and, and that literature. My wife, Nancy, was involved with learning about the healing plants, uh, herbal medicine. And as, as part of her path in, in talking with different teachers, going to conferences, taking a, a home study course, starting to make her own remedies, um, she needed to test those remedies. And, and that's where the role of the herbal husband comes in. And so suddenly I was being given remedies for all these conditions I didn't know I had. And <laughs> and in the process, um, feeling better, but also starting to understand how by supporting a biological system nutritionally and, and also becoming more aware of the biological connections that underlie our health, all the microbes that make up who we are, that all made sense for plants. That made sense for my trees. And, and so the notion of holistic orcharding was kind of launched between those two camps of understanding, organic farming, building soil health, but also then bringing in kind of that herbal perspective of how can we work with nutrition and biology to make a more robust fruit tree, which in turn is then able to stand up to, I call it environmental reality of pests and diseases and go beyond that. And, you know, the result is, is fantastic fruit that is that much more as well. Fantastic. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's really great how sort of both of your learning contributed to the benefits of each one. And we'll get to how the diversity plays a role in the health of the entire ecosystem. But before we go too deep into that aspect, I wanted to explore a comment that you're well known for saying, which is that a whole lot more goes into growing a healthy and delicious apple than most people think. So let's start by talking about the hidden process behind fruit growing and getting the product to market. So the idea of the healthy apple, any fruit, any produce, is that through fungal connection in the soil, working with soil bacteria, plants get the majority of their nutrients. That same kind of biological web extends up onto the surface of the plants. And when, when you start to work with biology, you are going to a much more complex place, but also a place that this is how nature does health. 
Um, and it takes a degree of understanding. There, there's no chemical shortcuts. But on the other hand, as, as you really get to working with the microbes and the fatty acids and, and specific nutrients and reduced form at certain points in the season, there's, there's a coherence there. It, it comes together. And I just get such a kick out of observing how healthy plants are not as attractive to insects. That doesn't mean that sometimes certain fruit-eating pests need to be dealt with, and I might utilize the kale and clay in that case. Um, there are instances where, oh, things like Japanese beetle or marmorated stink bugs, a little bit more of a complex situation. And, and well, we're humans. We're, we're supposedly call ourselves the most intelligent species on the planet, so our job is to think and, and come up with trap crops and, and ways where we can redirect an insect's energy so we can achieve what we want to achieve. So that's what I mean by the complexity of it. But in truth, as you start to think this way and you become observant to how nature does health, um, I think it all kind of comes together and, and makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's a real enjoyable way to grow fruit. Definitely. I think that's a, it's a much more, I guess, intelligent way of looking at it rather than having to manage pests through destruction or killing them. You've talked about redirecting their energy. So why don't we just start talking about that and you give us a little bit of an overview about how you manage pests and pollinators and how you attract the beneficials while deterring the pests in that way you mentioned of changing where their energy goes. Well, when it comes to, to beneficials, um, a big part of that is just, I call it outrageous diversity. We, you want all kinds of plants, all kinds of flowers, all kinds of herbs, all kinds of habitat, which is going to generate the space for those beneficials. And, and the pests are gonna come, and in certain cases, I absolutely want beneficials to eat those pests um, and keep them in balance. I, I don't wanna totally eliminate any one pest, um, Sometimes I think maybe that way about the round-headed apple borer, but that's, that's my own special <laughs> kind of challenge. Um, but I want them there because they're fodder for the beneficials. What I'm seeking is balance, not the elimination of a species, but finding, letting every species have its niche, but having this balance there that I'm also getting a good crop. Um, you know, we could zero in on any number of, of pests. A lot of the moths are definitely very much knocked back by the beneficial populations. But then when I utilize neem oil uh, as part of my nutritional program, neem, which comes from the Azadiracta tree in India, has long been used in Ayurvedic medicine and Ayurvedic agriculture. Um, neem contains these azadiractin compounds, which inhibit the molting cycle of insect, That by which I mean the ability to go from develop as an egg into a larva, to develop into a pupa, to develop into an adult. And, and neem interferes with that. It doesn't outright act as a toxin and kill the pest, but it, it, it basically locks them in a juvenile phase. And, then, and so they're not the same challenge. They, they don't reproduce it readily. And that in turn allows me to have apples without worms in them. Um, but I'm utilizing a natural remedy um, 
I'm using it wisely. You know, I, I won't apply neem during bloom time because I have bees in those flowers and, and they also have an insect molting cycle. So I don't want to affect that. Um, but all these things come together and working with, the, again, the nutrients and the herbs and the biology. And, and we got to talk about the biology because that gets where it's very, very fascinating. Um, to grow that healthy apple, to grow that healthy piece of fruit. And, and I think it's, it's quite doable in all the places that we live. Well, certainly yours is a fantastic example of that. Let's, uh, let's go into more detail about your biological spraying methods that you use and that you advocate for on your orchard. And you talked about the neem oil being an essential ingredient for inhibiting the molting cycle of the insects. What are some of the other ingredients and components in the sprays that you use? So what I call the core holistic spray consists of seaweed extract. So think of that as kind of a, a mega multivitamin. It also contains cytokine hormones, which has an influence on plant phytochemistry, the plant's ability to resist disease. Uh, the holistic spray includes liquid fish, fish hydrolysate, so cold processed fish, which has those fatty acids and a lot of the enzymes that the microbes will utilize. It contains some variation of organisms. Principally, I'm working with effective microbes, uh, which is mostly lactobacilli and yeast. I'm also working with a formulation of the photosynthetic bacteria called quantum. Um, and it's, it's these combinations of microbes that I spray on the surface of the plant that basically claim that niche for the good guys. So when disease organisms come, there is not the room to get in. Nutrients have been utilized. Um, organisms produce antimicrobial compounds to protect their niche, to hold their niche. So I'm reinforcing that. The, the difference between we humans in our bodies and a plant out there in the sunshine and all sorts of weather is the human body offers a fairly consistent ecosystem in terms of temperature and moisture and the, the hundred trillion of organisms that make up each of us carry forward. But out there in the heat and the drought and the acid rain and the ultraviolet light and the cold periods, um, colonization on the surface of the plant can drop down to as little as two to three percent of that surface area. But when we can maintain it at 70 percent or more, that's when the niche is protected. So I think that's all pretty cool. But then, then there's a whole nother part of this, and that is that the microbes interacting on the surface are just like the microbes in the soil food web. They're not all the same characters, but there is mineralization and assimilation going on. And so nutrients are being passed on to the plant just as a process of, of microbes doing what they do. And to move your brain, to move your conception to that level, um, just totally changes the idea of, of what we call in farming foliar feeding. What I'm talking about is providing nutrients for the microbes often, which in turn provide them to the plant in an assimilable form. And so fatty acids, fatty acids in neem oil, the fatty acids in baranja oil, the fatty acids in liquid fish, 
I am fueling that dynamic. I am supporting microbe health on the surface of the plant. So I have this ongoing colonization. And also what's cool for me is the fact that when, when sprays drip into the soil, those fatty acids, they support the sapotrophic fungi and the mycorrhizal fungi in the soil. And, and just as a counterpoint here, consider for the last hundred years, we've been focused in industrial agriculture, chemical agriculture, on the use of fungicides to kill the disease organism. And, and we've targeted what amounts to, I don't know, 2% of the fungal kingdom at the cost of the other 98%, the microbes, mm -hmm. the fungi that help plants be healthy. And that, that's like so critical to start to understand. And, and, and even within that, you know, we can identify the organic mineral fungicides, uh, copper, sulfur, lime sulfur, um, but, but they work in that toxic manner. And, and I'll use those in a transition scenario with an orchard who's consulting with me as we work towards restoring health in the full sense. But how wonderful to get to that point where what you're doing is not anti, not taking out, not allopathic, but instead is supporting the system, supporting health essentially is holistic. Absolutely. And what about the kaolin clay spray that you mentioned? Where does that efficacy come in and what applications is it meant for? So when kaolin clay, which is found in, in many soils, um, a fairly benign clay mineral substance, when that's refined down to very small particle size, that can be utilized on plants to specifically make it less habitable for certain pest insects. So in, in, in my part of the world, we deal with something called the plum curculeo, which is a small weevil-like insect that will make feeding stings in the fruit and also lay eggs that cause the fruitlets to abort. So I want a little less of that and a little more fruit to be left untouched and stay on the tree. And so when fruit set happens for those couple weeks, I will utilize a clay spray, which basically lays on the surface of the fruitlets and the stems and, and the twigs and leaves. The cuculeo crawls across, picks up the clay particles in its armpits and its nostrils and its eyeballs. It just gets irritated, doesn't want to be there. And, and I work with providing unsprayed habitat where they can do, go do their thing in some wild trees. Um, sometimes I utilize trap trees where I, I draw the cuculeo away from where I'm growing the crop, but then I put the chickens underneath. Now I've concentrated a, a vector, so to speak, where cuculeo goes up and down from the soil, the chickens find them, and I lessen the pressure for the future. Mm -hmm. um, the, this clay is, is probably even more of this clay is used in the western United States to deal with overheating and sunburn issues by whitening the surface of the plant. Um, and yeah, and then there's other examples of the clay, but I, I'm, I'm kind of targeting the specific moment when damage happens so there's less of it. And I can go further with that with the idea of trap trees and alternative places for them to go so that I am growing a crop. So that, that's kind of a pretty benign approach to getting the job done. I mean, I also use some biological toxins 
that work against Kekulia. I'm, I'm talking now of um, a soil bacteria that's fermented to produce spinosad. Um, there's another biological product here in the States called Venerate. And now I'm, I'm, le I'm lessening the pressure. The, the clay helps weaken the beast, so to speak. And so some of them are going to be taken out by that biological toxin, um, which does kind of verge me back into allopathy, but, but it, it's, it's a lot more benign and not impacting other things the way chemicals do. Mm. And it seems to me like all of these spraying regimes are dependent on having an intimate knowledge of the breeding cycles of different pests, but also the fruiting cycles of your trees and just generally being in tune as to what's going on on a more macro level of your orchard. Yeah, I, I think it's worth pointing out here that um, fruit trees are in the ground 12 months of the year. And so they're subject to a, a series of events, so to speak, um, that your red beet or your radish or your leaf lettuce, which is in the garden for 30, 60 days and then harvested, doesn't see. So there's, there's, there's a complexity to this. And the holistic sprays, you know, basically what I'm doing with the nutrients in the biology is I'm beefing up that competitive colonization, but I'm also stimulating the immune phytochemistry of the tree within. And, and, and the impact of that, the effect of that, lasts very strongly for seven days, quite likely is still going strong at 10 days. You can stretch it to like 14 days when the disease pressures are a little bit less. Um, but that basically gives you a rhythm to what I'm doing, that every seven to 10 days, and there's some variations in different points of the season, I am out there making a spray application of nutrients and biology. And then the insects, which are very site specific, you have to learn what's my challenge here at my site do I have this insect to even begin with? That's added onto that framework. Um, I have a, a website, Oliver. It's groworganicapples.com. And on there, um, there's newsletters. And I believe it was the June 2018 newsletter that people will find my updated overview of that holistic spray program, give them a sense of what is the timing and, and some of the why is behind it. Mm, that's a good resource. I'll definitely make sure to link to that in the show notes for this episode to point listeners that way. Now, before we kind of move to a different topic, I'm interested to know what you think or, or would you consider that a sprayer, either large or small, is an essential tool for growing apples at production volume or does this apply to many other fruits as well? Is it, a, is it a critical way of interacting with the trees or is it something that you could get around in other ways? One of the things I like to point out about a, a sprayer, um, a piece of equipment that allows us to spray, quote, things, unquote, is that it's just a tool and it's what we put in that tool to spray on the trees where the perception of spraying as a bad thing comes in. So for me, the sprayer is a way to deliver nutrients and biology. And, you know, I, I go out, I'm not in a Tyvek suit, rather I'm singing and I'm happy and I'm like interacting with the birds and the trees and it, it totally changes the perspective of that. Now, is spraying essential? Um, I will point out that with the holistic sprays, 
it's not just the fruit trees. You know, I'm, I'm out there applying to my berries. I spray our potatoes, our tomatoes, our garlic. It's just good for many, many things. And they're all plants. They all have a phytochemistry to help resist disease, and that can be suppressed or that can be boosted. They rely on um, a team of microbes to help make their protect their niche, which in turn protects the plant, like in the case of potato from late blight. So the relevance <clears throat> goes far across the board in terms of all the types of growing that we do for food and for landscapes and, and what have you. So for me, in that context, the sprayer is how I go about making that happen. And whether it's a hand-pumped backpack sprayer uh, that a home orchardist would be using, I have a 100-gallon sprayer on the back of my three-point hitch of my 35-horsepower tractor. Um, and there's certainly much bigger sprayer units. Um, we, can, we can find the right scale to work with what we're doing where we are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, you know, we could also talk about, about all these spraying materials. You know, I, I buy things kind of in bulk on the basis of stocking the pantry. And you'll also see products where everything's mostly pre-mixed, so to speak. Um, but you can, you can do many nutrients brews with herbs that grow in the place that you live I, I do fermented plant extracts of things like nettle and comfrey to boost calcium levels. Um, fermented plant extracts of, of horsetail and, and nettle when it goes into seed to help boost silica levels. Uh, I love this concept of plant medicines for plants, um, so to speak, boosting the health aspect. And once I've done those brews, I get them on the trees with a sprayer. So again, the sprayer as a tool not as a demonic instrument. It can be, <laughs> depending what you put in that sprayer, but you put good stuff in there. It's, it's not really any different than your favorite hoe or your favorite sigh or the other tools that you use to work in your land. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And in trying to make parallels with other things that, that we do, it, it seems like a lot of the nutrition that you're giving through these sprays is not so much like dealing with illnesses or pest attacks as an emergency countermeasure, but most of it is geared towards uh, a preventative nutritional and uh, health measure so that it doesn't get to the point where it, it requires an emergency response. No, you're right. And, you know, I, I fairly quickly draw parallels between our own health, human health, and, and plant health, the health of our agriculture. And, and we all evolved here on this precious planet, and, and we have kind of the same rules. You know, we have an immune system, white blood cells and, and all that, and that's dependent on good nutrition to be functioning fully. Same for plants. They don't have the white blood cells, but they have these phytochemicals, the flavonoids and the terpenoids, the phenols that in turn are how they resist disease organisms. And when a system is robust, that system can deal with environmental reality. It isn't as attractive to the pests. Disease is gonna happen. The question is, is there a fertile ground for that to take off? Or is this a place that's so healthy, the disease organism will be rebuffed? 
And so it is very preemptive. It's, it's and again, like our own lives. We, we eat well, we sleep well, we deal with the stresses in our life. Um, we have a much bigger leg up on the situation than if, if we're downtrodden. And being healthy is no guarantee that something doesn't happen. Things can happen. But when they do, um, you might reach for a more allopathic method to deal with it. That's true for our health. That's true for how we do agriculture. But you want to not go there to as great of an extent as possible. Mm. Far better to do things healthy. Yeah, I think those words ring really importantly for the health crisis that we're going through at a global scale right now as well. And I'm seeing sort of a pattern for what you've been talking about from diversity in the insect world to balance in a healthy way the pests and the pollinators, beneficial insects with the ones that might cause damage. And then with the nutrition cycle and the different uh, elements that you're using as a spray to promote overall health, it's a very diverse uh, range of compounds and ferments that promote all different types of life and function in the orchard. Let's talk now about the importance of diversity in the orchard system at the plant kingdom level and some of the polycultures that you've personally found success with in your orchard. I guess I'll, I'll point to three layers there, <laughs> three ways of, of thinking about this. One is simply having all kinds of flowering plants means nectaries, habitat for beneficial insect adults whose eggs, larvae, are laid on pests and consume those pests. But you don't have that latter step without providing the tiny flowers, the sweet sicily, the valerian, the buckwheat, all sorts of flowering plants to provide that habitat for beneficials. So, so that, that construct is, is a little fairly easy for many of us to grasp. We can see it, we see the flowers, we see these tiny little percanted wasps and um, the hovering cyphid flies. <clears throat> and as you start to learn about each one, you see how they help you with specific situations in your orchard. Then an another kind of plant in this grouping are the deep-rooted, broad-reaching rooted, massive plants, things like Comfrey, um, even rhubarb can be in this association. What I like about these plants around the drip line of trees is burdock is another one in this group, is that this massive plant up top shades a fair amount of ground. It has big roots, but between those roots, there's lots of room in the humus for apple fruit tree feeder roots to get nutrients. So they, they provide kind of a, a shading, a protection, while at the same time, through their own roots, drawing nutrients up to the surface. Comfrey is, is known as a calcium accumulator, among other things, which when that plant breaks down in the fall, whether it's mowed or just winter comes on, that nutrient is now been brought up from the subsoil to the surface. And that's also good for feeder roots to have access to that kind of thing. And then the third category I want to point out here is going to take us into the, the realm of mycorrhizal fungi. So mycorrhizae are species of fungi that made an agreement with plants going way back 
millions and millions and millions of years ago to not cause a problem, but rather form a symbiotic relationship where the fungi get photosynthetic sugars for energy from the plant and in trade bring the plant nutrients from a much vaster reaching mycelium. So 90 some percent of the plants on our planet have this affiliation. So we want that. But then there's a cool distinction, and that cool distinction is that the trees of the forest, whether hardwood or softwood, they affiliate with what are known as ectomycorrhizae, E-C-T-O, and that precious means that the, the fungal mycelium doesn't actually penetrate into the cells, but it surrounds the root. And that particular ectomycorrhizae, um, again, are affiliated with the forest. They have fruiting bodies. If you're a gourmet mushroom hunter, you know about bolites and matsusakis and, and morels. Well, they're all affiliated with specific trees. And in the garden, whether we're talking tomato plants or garlic, or we go to the pasture and talk forage plants, clovers, legumes, grasses, or we go to the berries, or we go to the fruit trees, they're affiliated with endomycorrhizae. And, and they form a network, and that's also bringing in nutrients. And in between the two are what are known as the so-called soft hardwoods, talking now about things like willow and alder and popple, and there's a number of plants like that. They actually bridge these two mycorrhizal systems. And by bridging this ecto with the endo, they become a conduit for nutrient sharing on a much vaster scale. And one of the cool things about ectomycorrhizal fungi is their hyphae can reach as much as 12 feet down, and they <clears throat> actually work with bacteria to dissolve bedrock, which makes more nutrients available to bring to the surface. That happens for forest trees, but it's only through these bridge trees, the alders, the popples, the willows, that you create a place where that deep reservoir of nutrients can be brought up and go on to all the endo-type plants. I'm, I'm throwing a lot of concepts at you here, but basic no, idea is when you, have, when you have willow and alder and, and plants like that in the vicinity of what you're growing, you have these bridge trees, and, and that adds to the nutrient crescendo. It's really cool that we're alive in this time where we have electron microscopy and, and, and can start to really understand some of what's taking place when we create what I've called outrageous diversity. Mm. Yeah, very well said. I, I think we live in a fascinating time, too, that, that, you know, this type of information is available even if you don't know how to use those microscopes and, and it's it's sort of disseminated in a democratic way that allows growers to make use of it rather than just at the higher up ends of formal education. And with that understanding of the species and how they interact in your orchard and the relationships that form for the benefit of the whole, let's kind of zero in on your orchard species specifically because that's what's needed for production and income for the most part. Talk to me a little about how you select the right tree species for your climate and your land while balancing what variety will bring a good return at the market. So I'm one of those people who happens to have a, um, a deep addiction to 
the wide varieties of apples. Well, I'm growing about 120 varieties here. And, you know, over time you see a certain variety doesn't do quite so well. You you have your hardiness ratings. I am not in a place where I can grow peaches. I can plant peach trees, but every three winters or so, the temperature drops down 30 below Fahrenheit, and, and that's just not going to work for a peach tree. So I never get to the point where I can grow peaches. Um, yeah, maybe in 10 years, things are going to change, and I'll be growing mangoes and papayas in northern New Hampshire, but that's, that's another storyline. But the knowledge base of <clears throat> which are the right plants for what where you live well nursery people have some of that information you talk to neighbors you learn oh this this tree did so great for my grandparents and then you graft it and you bring it into your collection and what i do here marketing wise it, it, it's not on the wholesale level i'm i'm selling directly to people who come from the local community and maybe from downstate to our farm to our barn for the three-day fall weekends and I have samples of different varieties out and talk about the lore the stories of some of those apples make it all very much alive you know we also grow a handful of pears we have pie cherries for ourselves I love cherry pie you can't <laughs> do without that <laughs> um, we have the northern Asian American hybrid plums that's the plum that will work this far north um, but in terms of, of figuring out what's the right thing for where you grow, that information is is out there from nursery sources and that hardiness zone aspect. Then there's also the passion for each fruit that you want to grow. If if you don't really care for a certain fruit, you know, don't grow that. Grow something that excites you, that you're passionate about. But the big point is just start to recognize how that fungal ecosystem is so important to woody perennials that give us fruit. And that is what is going to determine your success. Mm. And as you start to grow fruit that people want to eat to the core because it's so tasty, it's so amazing. There's so many flavors in these different apple varieties, so many textures. Then you just see how it comes together. And yes, I have certain varieties I grow more of, and, and there are a few local food hubs I sell during the week. Um, they don't get the whole Monte. They don't, they don't get the 120 varieties, but there are a dozen or so varieties, apples that do really well here and are really distinguishable in terms of their color and, and the intensity of flavor. Things like Sweet 16, uh, Another apple I gave a name to, we call it Bonkers. And there's there's another apple that I've recently been working with and I've, I just planted um, 10 more trees of this that I, I've given the name Red Delirious, which is which is a very much a counterpoint to Red Delicious. Mm. Um, and it, it has depths of flavor like a, like a fine Merlot wine. It's, it's amazing. So, yeah, you grow things. Some work, some don't. That helps you kind of narrow it down then you figure out this is an apple i want to or a particular fruit variety i want to grow more of because it's it's really a success and the type of marketing that i'm doing and you add and build up that part of your planting um but it but it's a process it's an organic process of, of seeing what works well and what customers are amazed by and 
what kind of is sits aside and maybe you shouldn't plant quite so much of. Mm. And you kind of made a little joke earlier about maybe being able to grow papayas and mangoes in northern New Hampshire at some point. But at a more serious level, do you think that the shifting climate zones should be playing a factor in how people decide to plant at this point? What I'm seeing with the climate and, and the changes that are going on, like here I am, we're talking on May 20th, and my apples aren't in bloom yet. This, this is a very delayed season. We've had a cold spring, and, and that's happened in the past. But it, but it isn't so much always about warming. It's about erratic. Definitely. <laughs> um, that, that notion of the polar vo vortex coming down in the winter, well, it was delayed until like late April, early May. You know, south of me, um, growers have lost their fruit because they couldn't handle, the trees couldn't handle that kind of cold when in bloom. Where my buds mm -hmm. were still in the tuck, I got through that. Things are looking quite good. Um, on the other hand, we also have warmer falls. That means that I have a longer harvest window, a longer ripening window. So I can grow some of the later varieties that 30 years ago when I was first planting, I wouldn't have really thought it wise to put too much into apples like Baldwin and Northern Spy, classic American keepers, just because I, I wouldn't have a, a long enough fall for them to fully tree ripen. Now it's a given, it almost seems. And then, of course, you have these erratic events. You have big windstorms and, and hailstorms. And we've always seen some of that, but now it's, they're not quite as erratic. They're almost like, oh, we can count on this happening once or twice in the yeah. season. So how do we get around that? How do we plan for that? How do we deal with that? Um, you know, one, one strategy, and I think it's a valid one, is outrageous diversity with respect to what we grow. Don't just focus on apple. Mix it up because some years one variety may be really great. Another year it'll be the other variety that's really great. Um, cover your bases, have some berries. And I, I know that makes things a little bit more complex, but it also helps create that local food system, that local farm that's producing so many things. And, and there, there are changes because the summers are warmer. Um, we are about to finally warm up here. And it's going to be in the 80s in about several more days, and, and bloom will start happening. Well, there's a bacterial disease called fire blight. And fire blight looks for an opportunity, which is represented by that open flower, to get into the vascular system of the tree. And so I have to be more aware of if the conditions are right for that disease, I better get out, out extra microbes on those flowers that I might have sprayed at pink but now I've opened, and that open blossom is virgin territory. I want to get good microbes in there. You know, if, if it's not in the 80s, if it's still cool, I don't think about that. But those are some of the perspectives you, you have to broaden to what's changing, what maybe now is a challenge I have to be aware of if conditions are right. So all of that, you know, it's, it's an art. It's an art and a science to grow good food. And... When you embrace both aspects of it, you can figure it out. Sure. I mean, that's good encouragement just as an approach for life, pretty much. Um, but you mentioned bringing in this extra diversity in your crops as a resilience method, the 
different types of trees, factoring in berries, these things that go well together. Do you find that there's a certain point where diversity is a drawback for the business model where you're just, you're not specialized enough to be able to have either some sort of efficiency of production or harvesting method? Or is it really just a matter of your business model needing to reflect a more diverse planting along with the, the orchard management? No, the, the two are very much related. Marketing and your, your, your cropping plan um, have to have some correlations. So when I spoke of people coming here and tasting my apples, but that doesn't happen in the supermarket. If, if, if you can get a decent wholesale price, and, and that is a big question, <laughs> um, versus what you can get retail or working through a local food hub who's not quite as cutthroat as a big supermarket chain. Um, even for there, like I mentioned, I have 10 or 12 varieties that I grow more of, recognizing that that's a good outlet for that. For me, another part of this is, is the value added side. So to squeeze fresh juice, what we call sweet cider in the United States. You know, I'm, I've had various operations, um, farm operations, marketing setups over the last 30 years, and I'm, I'm reestablishing the cider mill aspect of our farm. What we used to have in that regard was leased. And I'm forming a um, membership-only cider club. <laughs> you, you, you'll... And the idea here is that people are help, helping to purchase the infrastructure by virtue of which that whole question of pasteurization doesn't come into play because it's people's cider. I'm, I'm merely growing the apples and pressing them, not selling hmm. juice per se. I'm, I'm doing kind of an end around on, on bureaucracy, and which is totally modeled on what's been done here with raw milk people buy a share of the cow it's now their cow they're entitled to drink their cow's milk i'm, I'm, I'm modeling that same idea um we do uh, another variation of apple juice when we boil it down by seven parts um and what's left behind with the pectins sets and gels we call this cider jelly and that's part of the plan too. You know, it's, it's not all just, are you selling fresh fruit? And now you maybe you're opening yourself up to marketing um, through the mail. It's, it can get too complex. You got to keep it in balance. I agree with your, your question there. Like you have too many irons in the fire. Um, is it working out? But you need, you definitely need several irons in the fire <laughs> to yeah. deal with the erraticness of the climate and also build up a more of a retail base that's effective. Uh, we're quite rural and it's not necessarily easy for people to come here regularly, but when they do, I sure as heck want to have a, a good array of products so that they are buying more than just $10 worth at a time. That It's just like, Oh, I got to have this. I got to have this. I got to have this. But yeah, even in that, you definitely need to find balance as well. Certainly, yeah. And I've heard this echoed by so many other producers and growers who are at the top of their game who I've either interviewed or researched myself. And they say a lot of the same things. I mean, one of Joel Salatin's approaches is it's much easier to sell $1,000 worth of product to 100 people than $100 worth to 1,000 people. 
And by having that diversity of products, you can really create loyal customers that know that your place is a one-stop shop for a certain category of goods. It seems like if you start with kind of a flagship enterprise, you can move from there to build on complementary enterprises that make sure to utilize any waste products or to recycle any other things and add diversity into your offerings to the clients so that you kind of end up creating this robust business model over time, but that you do it little by little so that you don't <laughs> sink or get in over your head from the very beginning. Yeah, like this is a, a, a new idea, a new venture of what I'm doing. But so in making, in fermenting cider, alcoholic cider, um, I have carboys and fermenting tanks and, and the lees, the, the leftover spent yeast at the bottom of the tank is something you always just, I might've given it to the chickens or thrown in the compost, but it, it finally struck me that lees are, are filled with yeasts and they also have a very strong lactobacilli content. And I'm now brewing my lees like the mother culture I've gotten from companies for affected microbes. And this is a trial, but it's, it's just one of those like, why not? These are my very own yeasts. These are the yeasts that live here and, and work here. And I can replenish those populations in my holistic sprays from the waste product of something I do as part of my marketing plan. It's all pretty cool. I call them effective cider microbes. Yeast nice. Nice. Man, that's, that's, Sounds like some delicious products coming up. And this must be kind of a later succession as you've had more of your plantings from earlier years come into production and increase what you can offer as, uh, as even byproducts or value-added products from the apples. Yeah, that, you know, what's that saying about when was the right time to <laughs> plant fruit 20 years ago, plant a tree 20 years ago? Um, it takes some time. You know, this is not a, an instant plan. I, I used to supplement my income by doing a lot of carpentry off the farm. Um, and it's nice now to be have enough going on here at the farm that that part is gone. And, and my wife, Nancy, has plenty of carpentry projects for me as it is. But it's you build into it. You grow into it. Just as the tree develops limbs that can hold the weight of a fruit crop, you develop your marketing ideas and and the niches in the season where you can have time for this crop or that crop. You know, I probably one of the most profound pieces of advice I could give is do what you do at the right scale so that you do it right. Having a hundred things where everything is behind is not happy. Having 10 things that you've kind of worked out the sequence and you can get it done in time and done right is happy. Yeah, that's fantastic advice that applies to so many things. Now, there's one more aspect of your orchard management that I'd like to explore. Could you tell me about the method of weed and overgrowth control that you manage with what you call biological mowing? So human constructive mowing is can be as basic as the lawn. We don't want things too high and we don't want dandelions and etc. blooming out there with just grass. Um, the biolo biological construct of mowing has to do with what are the roots of the crop plant doing in 
in terms of interacting with other plants, in terms of the mycorrhizal network, and how can I maybe pulse the nutrient flow to the crop that I'm growing when it's most needed? And so apples and pears, the, the palm fruit, offer a great example of this. So apples and pears go into bloom, and right after bloom, for about three weeks or so, they essentially stop elongating their shoots, and, and the plant as a whole directs its photosynthates, the, the sugars produced through photosynthesis. A good two-thirds of those sugars are traded with the biology down below. And when plant growth is not robust up top, that means that something's happening in the root zone. And this is the point in the season, I call it the spring feeder root flush, when the little feeder roots are coming off the year-round root system to gather nutrients to grow this year's crop and also to form, to provide the nutrients to form flower cells for next year's crop. So when I come around my trees right at the tail end of bloom and sigh down the swath of, of grasses and flowering clovers, just in that zone of the drip line and, and under the tree, for the most part, I leave certain plants grow. Um, what I'm doing is shocking the root systems of those plants that grow near the fruit tree, just as the fruit tree is putting out these feeder roots, which in turn means as more room, more of the pulsing of the nutrients is gonna go through the mycorrhizae to the apple tree, to the pear tree. And eventually the understory plants recover and grow again. But this means right at that kind of critical time, the spring feeder root flush is all the more successful in getting what the fruitlets need to develop and putting effort, energy into the development of flowers for next year. So my whole mowing scenario is based on essentially seeing what's going on underground and how my impact of that sharp side blade helps my apple trees in turn grow better fruit. All this coming back to that acute awareness of the processes that nature is going through and the stages of growth of all of your plants. I think it's a, it's just a beautiful way of interacting with that ecosystem in really taking the time to understand what it's going through and when and what actions or interventions are going to help give it the next kind of bump up in the step of succession and the step of growth and the step of health that it's wanting to get to naturally. No, no, I agree. It's, it's incredibly complex, but it's, it's breathtakingly beautiful. Mm, a very <laughs> elegant we relationship. Into, as we plug into understanding these things, it's, it, it makes obvious the timing of um, going out and, and cutting the grass around the trees, the, the timing of, boosting the phytochemistry when certain diseases are at their most prominent moments, um, recognizing when a particular rain event brings that threat of disease much more so and, and being preemptorily prepared beforehand. And it, it does all come together. And, and then you, you see less problems, you see more health, and that's so satisfying. It's, I, I, I sometimes that, that saying about you get 50 shots in a lifetime to do something, you know, and every spring is, is one of those shots. And I'm, it's like, I want to learn so much more. <laughs> yeah. More than 50 chances. Yeah. 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 
So with that said, what advice would you give to listeners who are thinking about starting their own orchard? What are some of the most important things to consider in your opinion? So when I do a, a consultation, a site consultation, I, I will talk about the lay of the land, um, different orchard systems, how there's different rootstock size trees, what that requires. Um, but I'll also talk about the marketing piece. You know, what, what are your intentions? What are your plans? Where's room for growth? But let's not necessarily grow there all at once. <laughs> let's recognize it's going to be a process. But you, you need to get your hands in the dirt and, and you need to actually work with a tree, observe it through the seasons, uh, work with the berry planting. Go see other farms, see how they've done things. And it's through experience. It's through the, the eyes that observe that you'll learn the nuance that'll make you successful. And it's an education. It's an internship. Um, you know, one of my sayings is when we plant trees from a, a mail order nursery, it's, it's bare rootstock. And if it's a one-year nursery tree it, it, it's probably a whip doesn't even have any branches yet and then I look out at the class I'm teaching and I say some of you out there are whips <laughs> you're 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 just starting and just know that there's a few years here to grow that branch structure to learn the pieces that you need to have to be successful at this and and, and there's a relaxation in that it, it isn't like you have to Grasp it all at once. It begins by getting your hands in the dirt and just giving thanks for being on this planet, being alive and being able to work with green plants and, and grow healthy food. Mm, I love that message. Well, before I let you go, Michael, can you tell us where people can find your books, The Holistic Orchard, The Apple Grower, as well as your online resources like you touched on earlier? So, so the website is groworganicapples.com. And I call this effort the, the Holistic Orchard Network. So there, there's people who are growing fruit for their community are plugged in. Um, there's articles about various aspects of growing that are there for free in the biological curriculum. There's research updates. We have a, a growers forum. Uh, anyone can read that forum. I try to keep it to more of a community orchardist perspective um, but whether you're a home orchardist or a community orchardist or even a larger scale grower trying to break away from the chemicals I think there's there's much inspiration to be found there and of course there's a bookshelf so holistic orchard is there an apple grower mycorrhizal planet that's my fungal book that came out in 2017 um, that's a way that people can buy direct from the author. And that's nice. It's, it's kind of like supporting your farmer at the local food farmer's market. Um, it, it doesn't work necessarily through the big corporate chains or the online booksellers, but that's how you can connect with me directly. Marvelous. Well, I'll be sure, like I said, to link to all of those resources in the show notes for this episode. And Michael, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. I Totally enjoyed it. Glad we got through the get the connection in place and we could share about plants. And, and Yeah, it was a little soil. touch and go there for a minute, but we made it work. Thanks for your patience. And That's uh, great. Yeah, let's keep in touch. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. All right. Thank you, Oliver. All right. Take care. Bye. 
All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.